Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Fulm Tran. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past and present, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. For this week's episode, we hear from Yasmin Abdelmajid on the war in Sudan, and later in the show, we hear from Francesca Albanese on the ongoing genocide in Palestine. Yasmin Abdelmajid is a Sudanese-born author, broadcaster, and award-winning social advocate. She runs the website eyesonsudan.net, amplifying the voices of resistance movements on the ground in Sudan, and has also published five books, including children's non-fiction book, Stand Up and Speak Out Against Racism, and essay collection, Talking About a Revolution. In the first half of the show, Yasmin provides context to this latest conflict in Sudan and explains the role of neo-imperialism in this war. This interview originally aired on Tuesday breakfast on the 14th and 21st of November 2023. I was wondering if you could start by giving us an outline of recent events that have led to this current war in Sudan. Sure, yeah. So I can I can speak to sort of what hap- what's happened this year, but to to make it make sense, I have to take us a few years back. So in 2018-2019, the Sudanese people sort of rose up against Omar al-Bashir and his regime. And Omar al-Bashir was the dictator for almost about 30 years. And there had been attempts at revolutions before, most notably in 2012-2013 and since. But it was quite a, a, you know, a very strong authoritarian military dictatorship. So so it, was, it wasn't something that was very easy to do. But amazingly, in 2019 the people of Sudan were successful in overthrowing Amr al-Bashir. And what then was brought in was a transitional military, or a transitional council, essentially, which was part military, part civilian. And the idea was that over the course of two and a half years, this council would set things up for a civilian-led society or government. Now, the military, these two particular generals, Burhan and Himeti, we'll use those two names, they were sort of at the top of this transitional council and they were meant to, in October 2021, pass over power to the civilians. But when it came time for that to happen, there was a coup and they decided, you know, their their position was, well, actually, we don't we're trying to protect the civilian movement and whatever, like, you know, a bunch of lies where essentially they were not interested in passing power over to the civilians. And and unfortunately, also at this point, the international community found it challenging um, to, to the, the, the international community was like, well, OK, maybe we should put some trust into these generals. They decided to come to an agreement with the generals and said, you know, let's just kind of see what happens. What happened, though, was these two generals, Burhan and Hemeti. Burhan is from, you know, the Sudanese armed forces, so the traditional military of the state. And Hemeti runs something called the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, which are essentially a rebranded Janjaweed. And the Janjaweed were effectively responsible for the genocide in Darfur in 2003, around the early 2000s. They, when they were working together against the Sudanese people, against the civilian kind of movement, they were happy to work together. 
But of course, when you have two people that want a lot of power, once that common enemy is gone, well, then they turn against each other. So what we saw in April 2023, uh, 15th of April 2023, was that sort of that situation blow up the rsf the rapid support forces and the sudanese armed forces began to fight in khartoum in the capital city and that conflict has kind of escalated and uh, spread all across the region so khartoum the capital city which hadn't really seen this kind of violence since you know the turn of the the 19th century since the british were in sudan it has essentially been destroyed you know that there was shelling from the sudanese armed forces there was you know gunfire and 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 skirmishes in the streets and and that's kind of in the capital city just recently only over the weekend there were reports that one of the main bridges that connect different parts of the country together was destroyed by the well by who is not certain, but essentially that was one of the main routes for the for the RSF, the militia, to kind of bring uh, resources into Khartoum. And so what we're seeing is like the, the capital city of Sudan has become a massive battleground. And also in the West, in Darfur, you, we've seen the very similar echoes of the kinds of conflict that was underpinning the genocide in the early 2000s happen again. And we've seen thousands, I mean, there have been thousands of recorded deaths. There were probably many, many more. We've seen an enormous movement of internally displaced people, millions. Sudan is now the, the home to the largest internally displaced population in the world. I mean, hundreds of thousands have fled the country over the last six months. And so we're in a situation now, which is honestly very tragic. Like I'm sort of, I'm reporting all these things. I'm saying all these things in a, in a sort of journalistic manner. But honestly, it's been it's been an incredibly tragic uh, situation because only a couple of years ago there was a lot of hope there was a lot of um there was this sense that Sudan could be a, a beacon for for civilian government for for civilian governance for democracy for some sort of like move away from a military dictatorship a move away from the gun being the only way that power is transferred and power is is maintained in this society and now we've seen that kind of return and also i think that there's there's a sense that well nobody Nobody cares. The international community, uh, you know, really the main reporting about Sudan was when they evacuated foreign citizens and expatriates, you know, in, in April. But since then, you know, despite the fact that there is a, a humanitarian crisis, despite the fact that there are millions of people who are at the, at the point of starvation, despite the fact that there is no help coming in and and like no incentive for either the Sudanese armed forces or the militia, the RSF, to, to stop fighting, there is very little interest in or very little engagement. And I think that's something that's quite heartbreaking is that there's there's a sense that nobody nobody is coming to help. And and from my family that's on the ground, there's a real sense of despair and 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 also a sense of, well, we did everything we possibly could, right? We did everything right. It was a nonviolent resistance movement against the military dictatorship we did everything we possibly could and then and yet we're still here now before i sound too kind of despairing there is you know the resistance committees that came up in the during the revolution so the resistance committees are these grassroots movements that that were sort of local um organizations or local groups of people that turned into these kind of loose structures they 
are the sort of beacon of hope. And I think they are Sudan's experiments in, in democracy, in a democracy that doesn't just look like a Western liberal democracy with, you know, voting booths and whatever, but genuine kind of um, what does it look like for, for Sudanese people to lead themselves from the ground? And those kind of groups of people, the resistance committees, are continuing to do work on the ground and it's continuing to be inspiring. They obviously are the very people targeted by the state, are the very people targeted by the militia. So they are often at risk and many have left and many have been killed and so on. So so I think that while while this the situation currently is very depressing and tragic, especially as we are considering, again, maybe another genocide in Darfur, I think there is also... I have to at least have some hope and some optimism that we are seeing, you know, experiments in our own type of governance at the same time while all of this is happening. So many of these conflicts that we see in the world are embedded in this colonial history, the way that continents and lands are carved up in very particular ways. So is there a way in which neo-imperialistic forces are coming into play in this current outbreak of war as well? Oh, definitely. Often I say that, like, if it hadn't been for foreign intervention in lots of different ways, we wouldn't be where we are today, right? Whether it is things like the EU funding the militia, whether it is Saudi paying the RSF for armed forces to fight in Yemen on behalf of Saudi, whether it is um, Umar al-Bashir or, you know, the, the Sunnis armed forces getting support from different, the UAE and Saudi, they tend to hedge their bets. They're looking at, okay, because ultimately they want stability, they want access to the resources, so on and so forth. Like the level of interest and in foreign intervention in the resources that Sudan has. I mean, even Himati, the head of the RSF, he effectively controls like massive gold mines. And, you know, his family has, direct wealth from from these mines to the point where at some point and people may want to fact check this but i'm this is something that i this is my understanding of it he personally gave the the bank of khartoum like some enormous sum of money a billion dollars or something like that to keep it afloat so he himself using his personal wealth which was supported by you know people in the Gulf and so on, leaders in the Gulf and so on, which just bolsters the RSS position, but also bolsters um, his legitimacy and his ability to kind of like operate as an independent actor. Despite so, you've effectively got like two militaries, two quote unquote militaries within a state, which just it w- is never going to be like a good solution. Also, you've got Egypt. I mean, the United States has been attempting to flex in the region. I think I think generally people who know anything about the region think the United States has, has ceded any sort of legitimacy or, or any position of authority because they've they've done so terribly. But you know, they will always try. They, they will always try, I think. But I think it's actually Sudan is more of a, a reflection of the regional kind of machinations and movements, really. Um, I think with what's happening in Israel and Palestine at the moment, I think that's going to complicate things for Sudan as well. Both Himeti and Burhan have been, you know, they've been interested in normalization with Israel, for example, in a way that is about, again, gaining legitimacy in the publics, in the international community, you know, posturing to Washington and so on. So, like, you cannot understand what's happening in Sudan without understanding the kind of regional movements, even with Egypt and like, you know, Sisi just across the border and the kind of now relationship between, um, the thing that I often say to people is, 
most of the leaders in the region just want stability and control. They don't want an example of what democracy can look like just down the road, right? That's something that they're very against. So whatever way that they can kind of support the status quo continuing to exist, they will support that because, you know, they can deal with a military general. They know the the levers to control could to control a military general, it's money, it's arms. Also, the other thing to to think about here is, and this is not something that a bunch of reporting has been done on because it's a dangerous thing, but, you know, there there is, Sudan manufactures weapons as well. Sudan actually produces arms for lots of different conflicts in the region, for the Congo, so on. And so, like, that, again, is another interest that many actors in the area have. And when you look at across the Sahel, Mali, Niger, etc. Like there are lots of different coups and challenging political situations across the region. And I think that instability is concerning to some, but also in a, in a way like actors benefit from that instability because they can come in like somebody, I was talking to a journalist who was like, oh yeah, after the revolution, it was wild, wild west because everyone, everyone and anyone came in and they wanted to benefit and there was money and there was this and there was opportunity and there was just grabs, 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 those grabs. And so that's what you kind of see when you sort of talk about the neo-colonial aspect of it. That's what you see is everyone's like, oh, we can get something here for us, you know? And again, this is when these people lose out. You just heard excerpts from a conversation I had with Yasmin Abdel-Majid on the war in Sudan. To learn more about what's happening in Sudan, visit eyesonsudan.net. We're now going to hear from Francesca Albanese, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories. This next speech was recorded at the Black Solidarity Gathering for Palestine held at Dadi Monwaru in Nam, Melbourne on November 18, 2023. I would also like to acknowledge the owners of the land. The tra- I, mean, I don't know why you say traditional, because you are still the owner of the land. I hope you will, I will pronounce it correctly. Urungeri, Urungeri, land of the Kulam people. And hmm? Got, <laughs> exam passed. And, um, and it's a honor for me as a traveler, as someone who's here really for a week, uh, to honor and to pay tribute to the elders past and present. Coming, I mean, I'm Italian, so I do not belong to the UN more than for bureaucratic reasons, as you might have realized. <laughs> but, uh, but it's really being someone who has engaged most of her life, I don't even know why, on, on the question of Palestine. It's really something for me to come here and be able to mention the indigenous people. Because I come from a place, or I speak about the people of a place who can't even really comfortably comfortably pronounce their identity, show their identity, because their very right of self-determination is not only not enjoyed, is frustrated, is denied, even in terms, even with the symbols of their identity. I also know that here, there are many people who in this tragic, hours, days, weeks, and become months, have been deeply personally affected by what happens in, in the occupied Palestinian territory, in Israel, in Palestine. And I want to acknowledge you all, Palestinians, Israelis who might be here, I don't know, Australian Jews. I really, when I speak of human rights, I really speak for everyone and anyone. 
and I would like it to be clear, because there is too much divisiveness. And in my experience, this divisiveness is more portrayed, is more envisaged, but those who want to continue to exploit the, the divisiveness in order to maintain the status quo. And yet, the 7th of October has pushed us into another reality. The status quo is over. And now it's up to us, to all of us, to determine the next course of action. And it doesn't look anything good. As someone who has studied and has engaged with the question of Palestine from the very perspective of the people who have been displaced for 76, 78 years now, I could tell from the very first hours of this war that this was not a war. And not just because it's a war against the people. It has nothing, nothing, nothing to do with eradicating um, Hamas, military or political capacity, which in any case, what does it mean? Can you eradicate a movement? Can you eradicate a political idea after you have been responsible for its sprouting and closing 2.2 million people in an enclave of poverty, of misery, of de-development, where the people couldn't choose. Half of the people in Gaza are under the age of 18. They have not voted for Hamas, and still they are being slaughtered because of Hamas and what it has done. But again, this is not about Hamas. I know that under the fog of war, Israel has already pushed out of Palestine most of its original inhabitants. 750,000 Palestinians, 80% of the Arab population of modern-day Israel were forced out in 1947, 1949. And mind you, they were not an outcome of war. They were the outcome of an intended ethnic cleansing that was planned and executed in order to pursue demographic, um, yeah, demographic homogeneity uh, on the side of, of Israeli Jews. And it has happened again in 1967, when 350,000 people, Palestinians, were displaced from what is today the occupied Palestinian territory, and they were never allowed to return. And this risks to be the largest instance of forced displacement ever. Because Israel, and, and this is why I, I tell the journalists here and the politicians, can you please listen to what Israeli leaders and military commanders are saying? The Egyptian, the Egyptian solutions, unfortunately, has been there for a while. And while Palestinians are being killed, like if there was no tomorrow in the Gaza Strip, left without water, without food, without medicines. It's horrible. I mean, I've been together with other special rapporteurs, warned against the risk, the grave risk, and the fact that there is a genocide in the making for weeks. I've raised the fact that this ethnic cleansing has been in the making for many years. And I did it already one month ago. But we are not listened to. And so really, we need all of you, all of you, because we have seen it before. This is, a, I mean, I agree that there is an imperialistic sort of setting here, but it's up to us to challenge this. It's up to us really to give meaning to that we, the people, the United Nations is not only the Security Council or the General Assembly or the Human Rights Council sitting in New York, 
or in Geneva. They are the guardians of our interests. They are the guardians of peace and security for us. If they are incapable of doing that, of protecting that, it's upon us to take the street, to protest, and to be there reminding our politicians, in this case, your politicians, good luck, to, <laughs> to, um, to do their job. I mean, I'm not, I mean, what I'm, I've been asked over and over, but what do you expect from Australia? Nothing much, just to comply with international law and to be consistent with its obligations. Is it Australia consistent with its obligations? No, no. And again, the other problem is that it's very difficult to let all the people know what's happening to the, in, to the Palestinians in the occupied Palestinian territory. But I also say to the Israelis, because I know, because I'm in touch with them, and there are many, I mean, Israel is not a monolith, and there are many who struggle to have their voice, voice heard from people who have lost family members and don't want the slaughtering of anyone, neither in Israel nor in Gaza, nor elsewhere those who stand in solidarity and try to protect the Palestinians in the West Bank, because there, there is no Hamas, but they are being pushed out as well, violently. There are almost 200 people who have been killed since the 7th of October, on top of the 300 who had already been killed before the 7th of October. For those, for those who had not realized that there is, that the reality was already horrible before the 7th of October. So there is a lot of, uh, of action that is needed to make sure that, this, that our political leaders uh, stop muttering words and do everything they can to enforce a ceasefire. Not a cynical humanitarian pause that I, I have horror even at thinking what it is. Are you stopping the bomb for a few hours and then, stop it and then starting it again? What is it? There is a need for a ceasefire. And when they, it makes me laugh when they ask me, how do we do that? Ask the Palestinians in Gaza, because they've, I mean, they've gone through five major wars before this. You have someone negotiating a ceasefire, then the hostages are sent home, and the Palestinians arbitrarily detained are sent home, and then a proper plan needs to start to end the occupation. There is no way out, and there is no way to go back. There is no way to go back to the status quo ante, to the prior to the October 7. Now, how do we do that? How do we get there? Uh, I'm not sure I'm going to say something very smart for once. For this, perhaps we can ask our friend Nasser. And, uh, but there is, uh, uh, there is one thing that really has really impressed me in this country, and it's related to this ceremony of fire. I had the privilege also to, to have one ceremony of fire for me only when I was in Canberra, where the first sacred fire was started in front of the embassy, the first embassy that you created, and was very touching and very emotional. In, uh, in Old Greek, I love showing off, so in Old Greek, <laughs> In all, in, in all Greek, uh, which is the, uh, the, the roots of our uh, Latin-derived languages, um, the, the word reason, logos, is associated to fire. And this is where we need to go back 
to reason. So imagine this fire as a healing process. When I hear people saying, having you here was so uplifting, I imagine it's not because I'm a very cool Southern Italian, but because <laughs> I, also, I also brought some common sense. The Palestinians cannot believe that there is someone who doesn't need to be explained over and over what the Nakba is. And I would like, really, I would like all of you, especially the non-Palestinians among you, because I don't know where the Palestinians have to find the patience to keep on educating about their tragedy over and over. You know, there is an Israeli friend of us, who's tra colleague, who's traveling with us, and she said something very important. She said, we Jews, have had have gone through hell for centuries, but we have the, we have had the opportunity to come to a closure. We have had the opportunity to commemorate the Holocaust, to talk about the Holocaust, to see justice over what was done through the Nazi fascism and at the Holocaust, with the Holocaust. But, and we also see that recognized by others. For the Palestinians, there is no closure, not only because it's ongoing, because they still struggle to have the most basic rights in whatever remains of their land respected. But there also there is no recognition of what they have endured, the dismemberment of their land, which was which is which is super evolved and civilized and mythology European. Everything has gone. And again, on this, really, we need your help. Educate yourself and talk about the Nakba, because we need to go back to the roots. Unless people understand where these all is coming from, it will be difficult to have full acceptance for a resolution, which is a stable and peaceful one, peaceful one for all. And as we move forward, I think that thinking of that fire and the healing power of fire and reason we can only do that through a sense of togetherness. Because solidarity, as I often say, is an act. It's not just passive putting likes through social media. Huh? Right? Do we agree? <laughs> it's an act. It's an act. It's action. It's a verb. And the Palestinians need now your solidarity, our solidarity, more than ever. And in fact, I think that it's both the Palestinians and the Israelis that need to be taken out of the, of the very murky waters in which they've ended up. Thank you. You just heard from the UN Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories, Francesca Albanese. To find information on actions happening in Nam Melbourne, make sure you follow Free Palestine Melbourne, as well as APAN, the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network. That's all for Women on the Line today. We would love to hear any comments or thoughts you have about the program, so please send us an email at womenonthelineline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 8377. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. 
I'm Phuong Tran. Tune into Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.